everyone. Welcome back to season two of the Playbridge podcast. I'm so excited to kick things off with our first guest of this season, Christine Locker. She is the founder and CEO of Locker, the social commerce platform supporting shoppers at every step of their consumer journey from initial discovery until purchase. Locker enables users to save any product they want while browsing online into one organized place. As an avid online shopper, Christine found herself constantly taking screenshots of products or keeping dozens of tabs open, but there wasn't a platform that provided the utility or social aspects she craved as an everyday consumer and non-influencer. Christine's story of becoming a founder is unconventional. She spent her first two years out of school as a real estate analyst at Goldman Sachs, then worked alongside her dad as a commercial real estate broker. But something in her gut told her that Locker was worth risking at all. She stepped away from a lucrative and stable career in 2020 and invested every penny she had into building Locker so she could provide the solution to the problem that she and millions of other shoppers like myself face. Um, So, Christine, welcome to the show. It's been so fun getting to know you a little bit in L.A. And I'm so excited to have you as my first guest back for season two. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Um, well, first, I think I would love to dive into your unconventional path as a founder. Um, I think that's so interesting and would love to hear a little bit more about how you went from working in real estate to starting Locker. Sure. Um, so yeah, my background being in real estate, I studied real estate in college. I was a real estate finance major actually at SMU. Um, and then it was a natural progression to go into real estate. And I got into real estate in the first place because my dad was in real estate and I had always kind of wanted to follow in his footsteps. And I think you can be good at something too. Like I'm pretty strong on the finance side. And so I was like, this makes sense. I'll just go into a real estate career. But as I was in my real estate career, having obviously a very different experience being at Goldman and kind of like the corporate structure of that job and then being on the commercial real estate side as a broker, which is very, very different, kind of like the eat what you kill commission side, I had very two very different experiences and neither experience really felt like it fueled my fire and my passion. And so when I was working as a broker with my dad, um, I used to always get, and I still do, get I did get text messages from friends and family who will say like, Christine, I have XYZ event coming up. Will you please pull clothes for me? And I would create a Google spreadsheet for them. And I would put all the items in the Google spreadsheet, the links, and then I would leave little notes of like, hey, I found this dress, like I think it'd be great for XYZ occasion, or I found this dress or or these pants, but I think we can maybe find something better. And then I would fire those off to my friends. And so I think in having those experiences on the social side and kind of like in terms of my hobbies, I then kind of started to give myself the freedom to think about how I could turn that into my full-time like passion project. And in experiencing these things as a consumer myself, as well as like realizing that on the social side of it and between friends, like it was broken, I started to kind of like look into the industry as a whole and how do I solve this for myself? How do I figure it out? And nothing was out there really doing that. I tried to use Pinterest to solve it um, and realized that it was just too cluttered with inspiration and not shoppable products to actually turn that into um, my overall like shopping platform. Um, and then I remember in December of 2019, Instagram launched Instagram shopping to the public. I think obviously they had been like 
alpha testing it as well. But I remember getting a notification on my phone and I looked at my dad and I had been talking to him about this idea for Locker. And I was like, maybe I'm going to go off and do this. But it was a scary thing to like also tell my dad I wasn't going to work with him anymore. And I didn't want it to be something bad between the two of us. I wanted it to be like a, a good split. And I looked at him and I was like, Instagram just launched Instagram shopping. If I'm going to build Locker, like this is going to be the time to do it. So I essentially walked out of his office that day and was like, I'm not coming back tomorrow. I'm going to try and see if I can build Locker. So it was really out of like, kind of like coming to the idea and then having something that like lit the fire for me, which was Instagram shopping um, that made me take the leap of faith. I think for like anyone pivoting just from like finance to startups or even going out on your own idea, it's like very scary to take that leap of faith. Was there anything you did to like prepare yourself and like help you get to that ultimate decision of like, I feel confident I can do this or I at least want to try this for like a given amount of time? Like what was your thinking during that? Yeah, my strategy was the let me test this for a like little bit of time. So I would give myself essentially like these mile markers of, okay, let me take three months, see what I can do. And then if this doesn't work out or I'm not cut out to be a founder or I can't figure out how to get from point A to point B, I'll just go back to doing what I was doing or then I'll figure out my next career step. So I used kind of monthly mile markers to say like, okay, let's see if we can get to finding an engineer to build this platform or let's see if we can sketch out the platform and um, on a piece of paper and like make it come to life. And so using time markers was really one of my like really key pieces because ultimately I had no idea what I was doing um, at the very beginning. And so I needed to have things that would like hold me accountable in the process. I think that's how most people feel. You just have to get out there and try things and figure it out. Exactly. That's like exactly. the fun in building a company. Um, okay, so you left your dad's office. You were like, let's go do this. What were some of those first steps? And how did you actually get like the first locker product into the market? Google became my best friend ever. Um, I think like the first thing I did when I left my dad's office and like that next morning was I Googled how to start a startup. I was like, what do I need to do first? Like, do I need to even have a company like yet? No, I probably don't need to do that yet. Like, let's actually just sketch out the platform first. Um, but I started doing YC Startup School, which I think is a great resource for somebody who wants to just kind of get like a general overview of startup, the startup landscape. Um, so that was really helpful for me. And then I became a part of a cohort for the YC Startup School, which is obviously something that anybody can do. Um, and so just like, having that opportunity to meet with other founders, I started to find like an LA founder ecosystem. And then obviously COVID shut that down, but I was going to some events like every like few days in kind of like the LA startup ecosystem, but using Google, using YC startup school, like finding kind of like a founder network to figure out, okay, how do I find an engineer to build this? Um, using my network from college, my roommate in college was a graphic designer. So I was like, here are my sketches on a physical piece of paper. How can you make this come to life like in an actual like Figma design? And so I tapped into people that I knew and hired my first independent contractor engineers off of Upwork. Um, they were actually LA locals in college, um, but they were able to bring the first version of Locker to life. So it was kind of the engineers, myself, and then my college roommate helping with the design part of things. 
that got us from kind of like zero to one in terms of like that first version of the product. Without an engineering background, how were you able to like suss out people on Upwork? Because that sounds like super tricky to me. And how were you confident that you hired the right engineers? I have heard so many horror stories of people <laughs> who have hired somebody off of Upwork and not had a good experience. So I think part of it is luck. I think part of it is that I found just like good natured humans who built the first version of Locker with me. And then the other part of it was I knew I needed to find engineers who could communicate what they were going to be doing for me in layman's terms, because I don't speak engineering. And so I was looking for this combination of like technical experience, but also the ability to communicate with me as a non-technical person. So I needed to be able to communicate to them. Here's my vision. This is what I want the user to be able to do. Can you build that for me uh, from a technical perspective and having that dialogue? And then I think I also just got really lucky because a lot of the Upwork or like any of those independent contract hiring platforms are very project driven. And that's what Locker was listed as on my Upwork listing was like this project of can you build me this Chrome extension? Um, but I got really lucky because the engineers ended up staying with me for I think it was like a year and a half on a contract basis, but they never like deserted me. They kept just working with me. They would do really minimal maintenance on the product when I didn't need them. They would come and jump in on bigger projects when we wanted to um, update something bigger on the platform. And so I think a lot of that was just luck. I got really lucky with who I hired as those contractors. But So I know you've raised outside capital since, but in like the very early days, how were you like bootstrapping or financing, even hiring those engineers, because I know that can be expensive talent. Yeah, I am a money hoarder for lack of a better word. I love to save money. I'm like, oh, I don't need to treat myself to that Starbucks. I'll save the $5. Like that is just my nature. Um, so obviously I had the job at Goldman. I've con I enjoy living below kind of like my means in terms of how they say like you should only be spending X percent of your salary on rent. Like I love even keeping it lower than that. And so throughout kind of like working at Goldman, living in Dallas, like my cost of living was lower. And then working with my dad, doing commercial brokerage, like can be a, a very lucrative career. And so I did well in the real estate space, um, hoarded all of my money, and then was like, let's go build Locker. And I knew that I was going to put the majority of my savings into this business, um, really believing in the product and where the product could go. But I also gave myself a limit on how much I would let my savings go down to. And so when I hit that number and I kind of had a goal tied to it too, I was like, I want to hit our first 10,000 users before we raise outside capital. But at the same time, I don't want to go, go below this certain amount of money left in my savings account. And so it kind of worked out that those two things hit at the same time. And that's when I knew I was ready to raise the outside capital was how do we survive on a little bit left in our savings account? Um, and how do we grow the company to this, to this, um, number that the first 10,000 users. Thank you for sharing that thought process, because I feel like that is such a, the personal finances are such a tricky part of starting a business and like being able to go out and do that. So very helpful. And then, so you're obviously working on the tech, you get the first product in the market. How did you actually get the first set of locker customers? And then how did you grow it to that first 10,000? Yeah, so we've always kind of operated off of a content strategy. Um, 
I think what's super cool about the Locker brand as a whole is a lot of tech companies, if you go to their social media, it like doesn't exist or it's like pretty lifeless. And I think we always wanted to create a personality with our social media. So like having content pillars, whether that's people need help shopping. So we have something every Monday called Let's Shop, where our community can write in and say, we're looking like I need an engagement party dress, or I need a wedding guest dress, or I'm just looking for a fall wardrobe refresh. Engaging the community in that way actually drives a lot of user growth for us because someone else comes to the social media, our social media page, and then they're like, oh, like I want to see what this platform is all about. So that has kind of been like our overall strategy is build this community organically through social content. And then in the very beginning, kind of getting to our first 10,000 users, we also kind of... Um, deploy a similar strategy now, but using really minimal influencer seeding. So finding influencers who have really loyal followings to like their entirety of kind of like their lifestyle. So someone who is trusted for what they wear, trusted for what they eat, trusted for where they travel. And I kind of found influencers that I like to follow on my own. And I would say like, I trust this person. I want them to also talk about Locker. So we used influencers like Mary Ralph and Kennedy Critchlow, the founders of Daily Drills. And I worked with Ella Rose and they were all so generous in in working with us for lower rates to like really support us as a solo female founded bootstrapped company. And so working with them and they were growing influencers at that time too. So it was almost like we could grow together um, which I think created like a really cool experience for us. And then now we still continue to use influencers here and there to kind of like seed bumps in awareness. And then from there, um, using word of mouth and community to grow um, organically. Amazing. And to your point of the Locker brand, I love the brand that you have built through Locker. Thank How did you. you think about that in the early days? I always knew that it needed to have a feeling of like the girl next door or like your best friend. So it needed to have a feeling of like, oh, I feel like I can ask this Instagram account, whoever it is, like for advice or clothing advice or fashion advice. And so I knew I wanted it to feel like I was a representation of the company as the founder and relatable. Like I'm a 31 year old LA based girl. And so I wanted people to feel like, oh, they know who I am and they can identify with me. And then also with our team members and kind of like bringing their faces also to the feed. So that's always been a part of it is like create this feeling of relatability. And then in terms of content pillars, I knew we needed to have a combination of platform education. So like, what is Locker? How do you use Locker? Why would you use Locker? But then also like, the clothing content and like helping people shop and creating that like engaging content in terms of um, finding the best picks from Zara or like having the best capsule wardrobe collection or like being able to help people kind of shop in any different season or style um, has been a part of the strategy. So I think it's a combination of the two is like really being educational about what is Locker and getting people excited to sign up for Locker. And then also um, having engaging content in terms of like, being on top of trends and and always helping people shop and stay stay on top of that. So those have kind of been like our main pillars from a content perspective. Yeah. You're crushing it on your personal account that I follow and also the Locker TikTok account, both. Thank you. Both literally killing the game. Um, walk us through for people that might not have used Locker before, how exactly does it work for the user perspective? And then also how are you partnering with brands and companies? 
Yeah, so if you're a user um, or you're a new user to Locker, I will walk you through how you can use it. So we have our Chrome extension and then we also have our mobile app and they function very similarly. So it just kind of depends which device you're on. But if you go to a brand website and you come to a product page, so let's say you're on the Revolve website and you find a pair of a Goldie jeans that you like, if you go to that product detail page, if you're on desktop, the Chrome extension will pop up in the top right-hand corner. So you'll see the little locker icon if you download the Chrome extension. And then if you click on it, it drops down and you can, you'll see the title populate itself. Then you can choose whatever collection you want to save it to. So if you're new, you're going to make a new collection. So maybe it's your like fall wardrobe collection or your summer collection, whatever it is. And then you can just choose whatever image you want and save it to your locker. If you're on mobile, um, what I think is really cool about mobile is just how natural it is to your flow of already sharing something, sharing a link. So if you were on that same pair of jeans page on mobile, you would click the share button. So the box with the up arrow that you go to like send a text message to somebody and locker pops up right there. So if you click on it, it opens a little locker window. Same thing. You see the title, you choose your collection and then you choose your image and you save it to your locker. So it really integrates with how you already shop. We're not trying to change your behavior as a consumer. So it's like if you're on that pair of jeans and you don't want to forget about them rather than leaving your browser tab open, you can put it in your locker and then you can come back to it later. So you never lose track of anything that you want to buy. Um, I know I've, we've talked about this before, but I very much needed this. And if anyone's like shopping for a wedding and all of the events that come with a wedding, like I was literally linking every item I was interested in and putting it in like a notion page. It was crazy. And I wish <laughs> I had, had this then. So it's super smart and also love. Thanks. We've also talked a little bit about this, the content that your team does because I'm someone that's not always shopping online. So it's nice to be able to, for this New York event I'm going to, literally go on to yes. Locker and be like, okay, someone needs to be my personal shopper, aka yes. Locker, to find me a work outfit. So everyone yes. go and check it out because it's truly an amazing product. Thank um, you. And then you asked in terms of like how we work with brands yeah. too. Um, right now it's on in two different ways. Right now it's on an affiliate basis. So if you save something to your Locker, then you go from Locker and you go back out to a brand website if we're partnered with them on an affiliate basis, we make revenue on any successful sales that we drive. Um, one, I think, special thing about Locker is we do not restrict any brands that you can save from. So, for example, there are certain brands that don't play in the affiliate space, but at the same time, those brands are really important to you as a consumer and they're a part of your consumer journey and kind of like you using Locker as a whole. We don't say you can't save from those brands because we don't ultimately make any money off of them because it's just too important to us to serve you as a consumer um, holistically. And then we also work with brands almost as like a quasi influencer relationship. So we will curate content on behalf of the brand. So we've worked with big brands like Essence, um, Revolve, Kendra Scott, Veronica Beard, and we've curated content for them that we think will serve our audience really well. Um, around a theme or a campaign. And then that goes on the content page on Locker and we get paid a flat fee for that. So one of the things that's really important to us as a brand and kind of maintaining our brand value is that the content we do put out there is authentic to who we are as a brand. So we will turn down brands that we don't feel like align with the overall brand value of Locker. Or we feel like we wouldn't feel aligned in putting that on the content page and and sharing that with our community if it feels... Um, inauthentic. And then in terms of 
also the products we're sharing with you from the brands that we do partnerships with. We don't allow brands to tell us specific SKUs or products. If they want to work with us as a company, we have to have the creative freedom to share the products that we genuinely like as a company so that it really maintains that authenticity. So while we're being paid to curate that content, it still is legitimately our choices from that brand as a whole. And so that is kind of um, our way of being able to generate revenue as a company and being kind of like a business while also maintaining our authenticity and like brand value for our consumers and users. Why do some brands not want to do the affiliate model? I think some brands feel like they don't need to play in that space. So for example, Zara is one of those brands. They're huge. They know their value. They, they don't necessarily need the help of like us curating our content on, on TikTok and showing our Zara haul because they just do so well on their own. So certain brands don't play in it for that reason. And then for smaller brands that don't play in the affiliate space, it's purely because it's cost prohibitive. So some of the affiliate networks have fees that make it difficult for a smaller company to be a part of an overall um, affiliate strategy and have that. So certain brands just can't afford to like even tap into the affiliate space until they get a little bit bigger. So it's kind of like either really big brands who feel like they just don't need the affiliate help or you're, you're talking to smaller brands who just haven't been able to kind of tap into the affiliate space yet. Back to TikTok and your strategy on, on that channel. Tell us just like a little bit more about how you first got started on TikTok and on socials, I guess, but specifically I feel like you guys have really gone viral on that platform and I'm sure converting a lot of users that way. So it'd be curious yes. for other founders looking to get started on that platform because it can be very intimidating. <laughs> what, yeah. like, how I would say our, yeah, I would say our start was like a pretty embarrassing start, which I think everybody should be yes. a pretty embarrassing start. It's like cringy, but then again, if it only gets 200 views, like only 200 people saw it. And so it's really not that embarrassing. Like there's nothing to be embarrassed of. Um, for TikTok, I wanted to also create that feeling of being a tech company, but having a personality. And so having a combination of like following the trends or doing talking videos or adding value in terms of shopping content. So we now do like kind of these flat lay carousels of, okay, here are like outfits you can legitimately wear for fall. And then we link them all back to a locker collection. So again, it's following those engaging content that has to do with like clothes and outfits and getting people that way to the platform. And then also like creating trending, like the videos where you voice over to the sounds of like, oh my gosh, if you still use like your notes app for your wish list, or if you're still using Google spreadsheets for your wish list, like you should use this platform instead, or like every online shopper needs this tool and like creating videos like that, that kind of like reach people. Another platform we love to make content around is Polyvore, which was like a huge platform. Maybe some people know it, maybe some people don't, but like huge platform in, I don't know, 2015, 2013, those, those years. Um, and so talking about like the people who miss Polyvore as a platform, like you can come use Locker instead. So we've like used that as a strategy too, to kind of like build a community of people who experience the pain points of the everyday consumer and like targeting them through like keywords like that, I think is an important strategy. But I think the biggest thing, and I, I think where we like continue to always strive um, towards, you know, 
perfecting even more is like having that brand personality. So whether it's myself making the TikToks or other members of our team, like making people feel like comfortable. And I mean, like the people who are the most successful on TikTok, it like doesn't even have to do with perfection or beauty. It has to do with personality. So someone is like coming to your page because they want to know what a day in the life looks like. So we do day in the life of me as the founder, day in the life of MG as our director of growth, like day in the life of our social media manager, like having those personalities brought into the platform as a whole, I feel like are so important. So um, I think the more you can show people um, about the process and the platform and like the work you do, like the more people are invested to into you and the company. So I think that's always a good strategy. Yeah, could not agree more. Also, totally agree if you do not feel completely cringe after creating like your first 100 tiktoks you're probably doing it wrong i am yeah, wildly literally. embarrassed by some some of my old ones so i i'm totally still wildly embarrassed by like some of my current ones and that's okay oh, like, hey sometimes i just put one out there and i'm like why did i do that but whatever yeah, it's like, sometimes yeah, they exactly. you know blow up and it's like okay i guess it was worth it yeah you just All never you can know. do is try things out so i know you raised an outside round of capital, I believe about a year ago. Can you tell us a little bit more about that investor that you brought in and why you brought in outside capital? Yeah, so for me, I knew I wanted to bootstrap the company up until our first 10,000 users before bringing in outside capital. But I think once I had hit that critical mass of the 10,000 users, I had kind of reached that milestone of like, okay, we only have this much left in our savings account. I knew I needed to bring in outside capital. And I think not all companies need to bring in outside capital. I think you can run a really successful lifestyle business, but for us being a consumer tech company, um, it's almost impossible to not have to bring in outside capital to kind of get to the next phase of the company. And so I, this is my first experience fundraising. I'd never done anything like it before. I started building our first version of the pitch deck. And then I wanted to ask our community a couple questions on social media. So I built kind of like these survey questions and I posted them on our Instagram stories. And one of our users reached out and was like, does this mean you're fundraising? And I was like, yes, like we just started the process. And she asked me to jump on a call. She just wanted to learn more about the process. So we got on this call. I was walking her through kind of like the overall fundraising process and kind of what we were doing. And she said, like, I would love to invest. And at the time, I had made it, like, it was a really important thing to me to keep the cap table really clean. So I had obviously put all of my own money into the company, but I hadn't taken any outside capital at all, not any friends money, not any family money. And so I knew I didn't want to bring in any smaller checks per se to the cap table in order to keep it really, really clean. And so I was curious as to, when she said she wanted to invest, like, what was that going to look like? And so I just asked, like, how much were you thinking? And she said, a million dollars. And I think my jaw literally dropped to the, dropped to the floor. I was like, are you sure? Like, um, but we went through a full diligence process together. With her being a user of the Locker platform, she really understood the value and the vision for the future of Locker and then all of the markets it could tap into and serve as well, like stylists, interior designers. Um, industries that kind of haven't been supported on the technical side of things um, at this point and really like where that fits into the overall consumer journey and how we could use the platform um, as a whole to grow into all of these other, helping all of these other um, industries as well. And so 
it's so cool to have a user of the platform believe in it so much and invest in the company. So that was our first um, fundraising experience that allowed me to then hire our first full-time employee. Um, and like we were saying with the TikTok thing, if you're not embarrassed of the first version of your product um, or you're not embarrassed of your first few TikToks, same thing goes for a technical product. If you're not embarrassed embarrassed for your first version of the product to go out to market, um, you waited too long. And so um, I would say that the first version of Locker was definitely on the wonkier side of things. Um, but bringing in that outside capital allowed me to hire our first um, engineer. We completely redid the technology. Um, I was able to then hire a director of growth. We launched the mobile app. And so you use that outside capital to build your product, build your team, like fuel growth of your user base and community and kind of like reach these target KPIs or metrics that then get you to the next fundraise. Um, and so that's kind of where we are now. We relaunched the platform. Now we have the app. Um, we're, we've reached like a key metric in terms of user growth for us. And so now we're looking at bringing in outside capital for our next round. Um, so we have 500K committed in this round. Um, the fundraising process is never easy. It's never um, necessarily very fun. Um, but it also is one of those things that's a fundamental part of being a founder and your founder experience. So um, I almost like to look at it as like you earn your stripes as a founder. Um, so this is me now trying to earn my next little set of stripes as we raise this round. Yes, I feel like fundraising is never a fun process, but I'm sure always like so many good learnings and insights. Um, but super, super cool to have an actual user convert to a an investor. I feel like that just says so much about how much they love and believe in the product. For people who might who might be listening and not understand what you mean by a clean cap table, will you explain yeah. a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah. So your cap table is essentially and you can probably explain this better than I even can, Ruffin, but your cap table is essentially all of your different investors and any kind of like capital that comes into um, your company, as well as any um, shares that you give to advisors or or um, strategic investors and advisors. So um, my strategy, just like speaking to my own personal experience of keeping the cap table clean, it felt important to me because I think like as you grow the company and you get to a, a stage where um, you're going to IPO, or you're going to have a strategic acquisition, the cleaner the cap table, the better the cap table. Um, so that was kind of always my strategy is unless you need to bring in the outside capital um, or unless they're going to add a lot of strategic value to you as a company, it's better sometimes to not take the money because you have to manage your cap table. So when taxes come up every year, like you have to be doing K-1s. Um, and if you don't have a platform and an accounting company that's going to do that for you, it's a lot of work for you as a company. kind of like creates a bigger company. And so that was kind of always my strategy is can you keep kind of like your investors or this cap table as clean as possible um, for kind of like longevity sake and building the company? So you you originally raised a pre-seed. I don't know if you technically called it that at the time. And now you're raising a seed round of capital. What have been like the biggest differences or takeaways from now raising a seed versus raising a pre-seed? Yeah, the pre-seed round, it was very much like we have this product, this product works, like we're showing initial, like very, very early inclinations of a product market fit. So like you have 
power users who are obsessed with Locker. Um, and that felt like those are the key metrics we were talking to is just this vision of this product that could be versus now when I'm in my investor meetings, like I feel like there's so much more meat to talk about um, in terms of KPIs and metrics that we're meeting, being able to actually talk about our revenue strategy, being able to show proven revenue is so much more exciting and, and feels so much more substantial versus the pre-seed round you're really pitching. And I think always, you're always pitching yourself as the founder and how you're the right person to build this company and kind of like your um, secret sauce as the founder. But it, but at the pre-seed round, it feels like that's really what you're attaching to versus now I feel like I can talk about myself as the founder and why I'm the right person to build the company. But at the same time, I have all these other metrics that show successful growth um, and val like product validation in the market. And so I would say for me, that's like the key differentiator between these two rounds is just all of the, the things I can talk to that are actualized now. And then still talking to like the future vision of the company, obviously, but there's so much more like meat and potatoes to the round that we're raising now that, mm -hmm. that didn't exist in the previous round. Okay, last piece on the fundraising portion. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's just like so many nitty ditty retails of fundraising, like so many different things. As a founder, like how have you, you know, come to learn those things and like become prepared for fundraising like are there any resources or maybe like do you have advisors that you've like tapped into to like really understand and be prepared for the fundraising process yeah it's a combination of things like one um listening to a lot of podcasts just of like other founders who have built consumer tech companies or who have fundraised and like using podcasts as resources and then um, i have incredible advisors who not only help me create a framework around the fundraising process, but then also help provide introductions to invest any sort of introduction in that space that I need throughout the fundraising process. And then also leaning on my founder community. So I have so many good founder friends from Julia, who's the founder of Home From College, to Maddie, who's the founder of Camber, um, some of my SMU, fellow SMU grads are founders, and having those people to be able to text and say like, hey, I'm starting my fundraising process here. What was your experience? And being able to share those experiences with other founders who I think are sometimes the only ones who can fully understand what you're experiencing or what it feels like on that side. It's been a really helpful um, resource to tap into just like fellow founder friends. So I would use a combination of like external resources like Google and podcasts to advisors and then founder friends as well. Mm. Well, one, thank you for being on this podcast because you now get to be a piece of helping another earlier stage founder learn more about that. fundraising and their journey. <laughs> and two, shout out Julia from Home From College because she's going to be on the her. show this season as well. So very Yay. excited. I love that. Amazing. And as we start to wrap things up, my final favorite question, can you share a female founder, investor, or leader that inspires you and a little bit about why? Okay. Um, I have a girl crush on Melanie Perkins, the founder of Canva. She is like my North Star founder hero, just because I think especially to like, um, understanding her founder journey, and how difficult it was for them to fundraise to build Canva, and then looking at 
what an incredible company Canva is today. Um, I really look up to her. So it's it's somebody who also experienced friendship in this space and like was able to rise above that. Um, so I love listening to like YouTube videos with Melanie um, and also being someone who uses her product every single day. I'm also like, wow, I really admire um, what an incredible company she's built. And then I think on like the more relatable side of things, obviously, because I do not know Melanie um, any way, shape or form on a personal basis. Um, but on a more personal level, Maggie Sellers is one of my advisors of Locker. And she's someone that I can send a text to every single day. And she's always responsive um, in terms of when I need help or when I just need to vent or talk about something. And I think having somebody like that in my corner has been such um, an asset to me as a founder. So um, I look up to her a lot as well. I think we all have a girl crush on Melody Perkins. <laughs> and also Maggie yeah. is amazing as well. So thank you for both shout outs. And yeah. then Finally, where can our listeners find you and where and how can people sign up for Locker? Yes, you can sign up for Locker at wantlocker.com or you can download the app. If you go to the Apple App Store, you can just look up Locker Shopping and we are the first one that pops up. Um, I'd be so excited for all of you guys to try the platform, especially if you love shopping. And then to follow us on social media or follow myself personally on social media, Locker's accounts are all at wantlocker. And all of my personal accounts are all at Christine Locker. And if anybody has questions, you can DM me. Um, I, I answer all of my DMs on Instagram. So feel free to give me a shout out there. Amazing. Well, this was so much fun. And thank you so much for doing the show. I'm sorry we had a little bit of internet difficulties and lost our That's video. Okay. At the end of this, but you got to roll That's with okay. it. You do. I love it. And next time we'll have to meet in person for Coffee in LA. Yes, please. I would love that. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Playbridge podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, make sure to like, review, and subscribe. Tune in every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts, for candid conversations with the most inspiring female founders and investors in tech.